Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part 2. Content Warning This episode contains sometimes graphic descriptions of violent acts committed against women. In every instance, I will be quoting verbatim from primary source materials and nothing else. If you wish to fast forward through these descriptions, I invite you to do so. I include them not for sensationalism, but because they are an integral part of the truth. The brief investigations into the brutal murders of Martha Tabram on August 7, 1888, and Mary Ann Polly Nichols on August 31, 1888, brought forth no viable suspects or clues. Three weeks had separated the deaths of Tabram and Nichols, which both occurred during bank holiday weekends, perhaps suggesting that the culprit was someone who was regularly employed. Only one week after taking the life of Mary Ann Nichols, the Whitechapel murderer would kill again, and almost immediately afterward, a grim legend would be born. Never to be forgotten. Annie Eliza Smith's exact birth date is unknown. She was born on a September day in 1840 or 1841. Most scholars think 1841 is more likely. Her father was a soldier, a private named George Smith, and her mother's name was Ruth Chapman. Annie's parents were married on February 22, 1842, six months after she was born. Annie's father, former soldier George Smith, eventually entered domestic service as a valet. Sometime between 1862 and 1864, George Smith committed suicide by cutting his own throat after returning home one night. This left his widow Ruth and their five children, Annie, Emily, Georgina, Miriam, an infant son, Fountain, alone, without any means of support. At the time of her father's suicide, Annie was the only member of the family not living at home. 
Most scholars conjecture that she had also started working as a domestic servant by this time. On May 1st, 1869, Annie married another domestic servant, a coachman named John Chapman, who was a distant relative of her mother Ruth. She was 28 years old at the time of her marriage. Annie Chapman is the only victim of the Whitechapel murderer of whom we have a photograph where she is still alive. The photograph that exists is of Annie seated in a chair while her husband John Chapman stands next to her, and it is from 1869, the year they got married. In this photograph, John registers as a very handsome, curly-haired, well-dressed young man with his arm casually resting on an ornately carved wooden sideboard. Next to her husband, Annie Chapman sits in a chair wearing a simple but beautiful pin-striped dress with voluminous Victorian skirts. Her dark hair is intricately braided, her waist cinched by a dark belt with a metal buckle that shines from reflected light. Her hands are folded in her lap, and in her right hand she holds what appears to be a small box, with the lid partially held open by one of her fingers. John Chapman seems disinterested in the camera, but Annie Chapman's eyes look directly into its lens, and there is something haunting about her gaze. You can easily imagine a sadness in her direct, unblinking look, accentuated by the shadows the light casts around her eyes. John Chapman procured a good job as a servant to a nobleman, and soon he and Annie began to have children. Emily Ruth was born in 1870, followed by Annie Georgina in 1873 and John Alfred in 1880. It's worth pointing out that as a rule, domestic servants were not encouraged or allowed to marry, and certainly not to have children. The fact that Annie and John Chapman did both of those things is a testament to their stature in society. Only the very best households permitted their most exceptional, trusted servants the luxury of marriage and family of their own. This is one of the reasons why Annie Chapman's story is considered perhaps the most tragic. Out of all the victims of the Whitechapel murderer, Annie Chapman fell the farthest from the life she had known. Annie and John Chapman's only son, John Alfred, is described as being born a cripple who often needed hospital care, although we do not know the nature of his illness or disability. Their eldest daughter, Emily Ruth, suffered from severe epileptic seizures, and she tragically died of meningitis on November 21, 1882 when she was only 12 years old. With the premature death of their first child and the ill health of their youngest, it isn't really surprising that both Annie and John Chapman began drinking 
and soon both became alcoholics. It was reported that after her daughter's death in 1882, Annie Chapman drank more and more and, quote, was often seen wandering about the country like a common tramp. Sometimes the police held her in jail for public drunkenness, although she was never actually charged or brought before a judge. In 1884, two years after their eldest daughter died, Annie and John Chapman's marriage dissolved for good. John Chapman retained custody of their two living children, and Annie was forced to move to Whitechapel in the East End. Her husband paid her an allowance of ten shillings a week, which was enough for Annie to live on. She sometimes supplemented her income by selling crochet work or flowers. Annie's husband, John Chapman, died of cirrhosis of the liver on Christmas Day, 1886. The allowance of ten shillings a week suddenly stopped, and Annie Chapman went to the village of Cluer, where her husband had lived, and it was there that she discovered he was dead. She stayed the night in a local lodging house, and people subsequently remembered that, quote, a tramp-like woman had been seen at the time drinking in the local pub. It was only after her husband's death in 1886, when she had no other means of financial income, that Annie Chapman turned to sex work as her only way left to survive. Her two remaining children, Annie Ruth and John Alfred, were cared for by relatives, and there is no historical evidence that Annie Chapman ever saw either of her children again. To put things into perspective, in case these crimes seem to be in the far distant past, Annie Chapman's younger sister, Miriam, born in 1858, did not die until 1940. Before I continue with the tale of Annie Chapman's final two years of life, I would like to quote a letter purportedly written by her brother Fountain soon after her death that gives great insight into the early period of her life. The letter was written to a minister named James Patterson from a member of his congregation requesting that unfermented wine be used at his services, explaining how alcoholism had ruined his sister's life. This is the direct quotation from that anonymous letter. My father cut his throat, leaving my mother with five children of which I was the youngest. My eldest sister took to drink when she was quite young. Twelve years ago, I heard a sermon on Christians and total abstinence. I signed the pledge with two of my sisters, and we tried to persuade the one given to drink to give it up. She was married and in a good position. Over and over again she signed the pledge and tried to keep it. Over and over again she was tempted and fell. 
At last, of her own accord, she went into a home for the cure of the intemperate. Her husband paid twelve pence per week, and she stayed one year. She came out a changed woman, a sober wife and mother, and things went on very happily for a few months. Then her husband had a severe cold, but his duty compelled him to go out, so to fortify himself against the cold, he took a glass of hot whiskey. He was careful enough not to have it in her presence for fear it should be a temptation. He drank it and came to kiss her before starting off. In that kiss, the fumes of alcohol were transmitted, and all the old cravings came back. She went out soon after her husband, and in less than an hour was a drunken madwoman. Poor thing. She never tried again. She said it was no use, no one knew the fearful struggle, and that unless she could keep out of sight or smell, she could never be free. For years we wrestled with God in prayer for her, never doubting that he would give the needed strength some day. She could not keep sober, so she left her husband and two children, one a dreadful cripple through her drink, her husband allowed her enough to live on while he lived, but he died two years after she left him, a white-haired, broken-hearted man, only forty-five. We never knew where she lived. She used to come to us now and then. We gave her clothes and tried in every way to win her back, for she was a mere beggar. She said she would always keep out of our way, but she must and would have the drink. I need not follow her history, for if you read the life of Annie Chapman, one of the worst victims in the terrible Whitechapel murders, you read the end of my sister's life. Annie Chapman was five feet tall, with wavy, dark brown hair and blue eyes. She is described as being stout and well-proportioned, with two teeth missing from her lower jaw. Annie had at least one close friend in Whitechapel by the name of Amelia Palmer. Palmer described Annie Chapman as a very clever little woman, very respectable, and never used bad language. A sober, steady woman who seldom took any drink, but she did have a taste for rum. When Annie Chapman told Amelia Palmer about her husband's death in 1886, Annie cried inconsolably. Palmer said that even two years later, in 1888, Annie seemed sad when speaking of her two children. Amelia Palmer is quoted as saying of Annie Chapman, Since the death of her husband, she seemed to have given way altogether. At the time of her husband's death in 1886, Annie Chapman had been living with a man named John Sivvy, after Annie's weekly allowance of ten shillings stopped coming, 
Sivy left her. From 1886 until her murder in 1888, perhaps due to her inevitable depression and alcoholism, Annie Chapman was known to all her acquaintances in Whitechapel as Dark Annie. From May 1888 until the end of her life, Annie Chapman slept in a DOS house bed for fourpence a night, a small DOS house where 300 people slept every night, if they could afford it. Annie Chapman developed a new relationship with a man named Edward Stanley, a bricklayer who was known as the Pensioner, and she continued practicing sex work to survive. In mid to late August of 1888, Annie Chapman ran into her little brother, Fountain, on the streets of Whitechapel. Annie told him that she was hard up, but refused to tell her brother where she was living. He gave her two shillings, and he never saw his sister alive again. On Saturday, September 1st, 1888, the day after Mary Ann Polly Nichols was murdered, Annie Chapman got into a fight. After many drinks at the Britannia public house, Eliza Cooper, who was reportedly vying with Annie Chapman for the affections of Edward the Pensioner Stanley, decided to escalate to violence against Annie. Eliza Cooper punched Annie Chapman in the face, giving her a black eye, and Eliza also punched Annie in the chest, bruising her breast. Timothy Donovan, the deputy of the Doss House where Annie Chapman lived, saw these bruises firsthand. On September 2nd, 1888, Donovan noticed her black eye, and Annie Chapman is reported to have said to him of her injury, Tim, this is lovely, ain't it? On Monday, September 3rd, 1888, Annie Chapman ran into her friend Amelia Palmer, who also notices Annie's black eye. Amelia asks Annie, how did you get that? To answer the question, Annie Chapman opens her dress, showing Amelia Palmer her bruised breasts. Amelia gasped at the injuries and Annie Chapman said, yes, look at my chest. You know the woman. On Tuesday, September 4, 1888, Amelia Palmer runs into Annie Chapman again outside Spitalfields Church. Annie tells Amelia that she is feeling ill and may go to the casual ward for a day or two. She also told Amelia that she had not had anything to eat or drink that day. Amelia Palmer gave Annie Chapman twopence, telling her not to spend it on rum. It is presumed by historians that Annie Chapman did go into the casualty ward for a day or two as she planned on September 5th and 6th, 1888. 
She was seen a few days later with a bottle of medicine, a bottle of lotion, and a box containing two pills, saying she had been in the infirmary. At 5 o'clock p.m. on Friday, September 7, 1888, Amelia Palmer sees Annie Chapman on Dorset Street, and Annie tells Amelia, I feel too ill to do anything. Amelia leaves, but returns about ten minutes later and sees that Annie Chapman has not moved, still standing in the same spot. Annie said to Amelia, It's no use my giving way. I must pull myself together and go and get some money, or I shall have no lodgings. At 11.30 p.m., Annie returns to her lodging house and asks permission to sit in the kitchen for a while. At 12.10 a.m. on Saturday, September 8, 1888, a fellow lodger at the doll's house named Frederick Stevens drinks a pint of beer with Annie in the kitchen, saying that she is already drunk. Around this same time, another lodger named William Stevens sees Annie Chapman in the kitchen. Annie said she was ill and took out the box containing her pills. The box fell to pieces in her hands. She takes a torn piece of an envelope from the mantelpiece and wraps the two pills up in it. Annie leaves the Doss house for the Britannia pub nearby. At 1.35 a.m., Annie returns to her lodging house, eating a baked potato. John Evans, the night watchman, comes to collect her bed money. Annie's bed in the Doss house was number 29. She normally paid eight pence, double the usual price, so she could have the bed all to herself. I haven't sufficient money for my bed, Annie Chapman tells manager Timothy Donovan. Don't let it. I shall not be long before I'm in. Donovan replies, laughing at her. You can find money for your beer, and you can't find money for your bed. Annie Chapman does not reply. She stands in the doorway for two or three minutes, silently looking out into the night. Finally, she turns around and says to Donovan, Never mind. I'll soon be back. I won't be long. Annie then turns to John Evans and she says, See that Tim keeps the bed for me? And with that, Annie Chapman walks out again into the dark streets of Whitechapel. Those who saw her leave said she was drunk, but she walked straight. At 5.30 a.m., a woman named Elizabeth Long sees Annie Chapman talking to a man in front of 29 Hanbury Street. She hears part of their conversation as she walks past them on the other side of the street. 
she hears the man ask, Will you? She hears Annie Chapman reply, Yes. A few moments later, a young carpenter named Albert Kadosh walked into the backyard of 27 Hanbury Street to use the outhouse. As he passes the five-foot-tall wooden fence that separated his yard from the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Kadosh hears two voices very close behind the fence. He hears a woman say the word, No! Then he hears something hitting the fence. Albert Kadosh did nothing. At 6 o'clock a.m., a carman named John Davis exits 29 Hanbury Street by going into the backyard on his way to work. As he stepped into the yard, he saw the body of Annie Chapman. She was lying on the ground between the steps and the fence, her head turned towards the house. Davis later testified about the moment of seeing Annie Chapman's corpse. Quote, her clothing up to her knees and her face covered in blood. What was lying beside her I cannot describe. It was part of her body. I did not examine the woman. I was too frightened at the dreadful sight. Dr. George Bagster Phillips described the body of Annie Chapman as he first saw it at 6.30 a.m. in his inquest testimony. The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were, too. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skin was jagged and reached right round the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about fourteen inches from the ground, and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. Annie Chapman's body was transported to the mortuary in the same simple wooden cart which had held the body of Mary Ann Polly Nichols a week earlier. Annie's closest friend, Amelia Palmer is the one who identified her body in the morgue. 
Following his post-mortem examination of Annie Chapman's body, Dr. Phillips continued. He noticed the same protrusion of the tongue. There was a bruise over the right temple. On the upper eyelid there was a bruise, and there were two distinct bruises, each the size of a man's thumb on the forepart of the top of the chest. The stiffness of the limbs was now well marked. There was a bruise over the middle part of the bone of the right hand. There was an abrasion over the ring finger, with distinct markings of a ring or rings which were missing from the scene. The throat had been severed, as before described. The incisions into the skin indicated that they had been made from the left side of the neck. There were two distinct clean cuts on the left side of the spine. They were parallel with each other and separated by about half an inch. The muscular structures appeared as though an attempt had been made to separate the bones of the neck to behead her. There were various other mutilations to the body, but he was of the opinion that they occurred subsequent to the death of the woman and to the large escape of blood from the division of the neck. The abdomen had been entirely laid open. The intestines had been lifted out of the body and placed on the shoulder of the corpse, whilst from the pelvis, the uterus and its appendages, with the upper portion of the vagina and the posterior two-thirds of the bladder, had been entirely removed. No trace of these parts could be found, and the incisions were cleanly cut. The mode in which the knife had been used seemed to indicate great anatomical knowledge. The doctor thought he himself could not have performed all the injuries he described, even without a struggle, under a quarter of an hour. If he had done it in a deliberate way, such as would fall to the duties of a surgeon, it probably would have taken him the best part of an hour. Dr. Phillips also discovered that at the time of her death, Annie Chapman was suffering from tuberculosis. The membranes of her brain were described as opaque, the veins and tissues coated with dark blood. She was not intoxicated at the time of her death. Tragically, Annie Chapman was unknowingly already dying from the diseases of the lungs and brain. If she had not been murdered by Jack the Ripper, she would not have had much longer to live. Annie Chapman died on Saturday, September 8, 1888. She was approximately 47 or 48 years old, murdered in the same month in which she had been born. Her body was laid to rest on September 14, 1888, in the city of London Cemetery. The funeral was paid for by her relatives, who chose to conduct the burial service in secret, 
so they could say goodbye to her in private. Out of all the victims of the Whitechapel murderer, Annie Chapman's grave is the only one that no longer exists. It has since been reused many times. However, in 2008, cemetery authorities decided to mark the approximate location of her burial with a memorial plaque. One poignant coincidence. The bed at the Doss house that Annie Chapman had gone out into the streets to earn money to pay for was bed number 29. She was murdered at 29 Hanbury Street. I can't help but wonder, in my imagination, if perhaps Annie saw the address and thought about the bed waiting for her and that after this one final client, she would finally, at last, be able to rest. At the inquest into the murder of Annie Chapman, the verdict was again willful murder by person or persons unknown. A month and a day, after the murder of Martha Tabram, the Whitechapel murderer had claimed two more victims. On the day Annie Chapman's body was discovered, a newspaper article stated, The mystery of the Whitechapel murders becomes more mysterious as time goes on. Theories abound, but facts are scarce. Words that are as true today as they were 132 years ago. On September 27, 1888, London's Central News Agency received an ominous letter written in red ink that looked like blood. This letter read... Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work, the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha, ha. The next job I do... 
I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha. Ha. This letter is believed by all prominent scholars to be a hoax, written by a journalist to sell more papers. But with that invented name, Jack the Ripper, this case entered immortality. Only three days after the Dear Boss letter was received, the Whitechapel murderer would strike again, and this time two innocent women would die on the same night, the terrifying night now known as the Double Event. Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part 3, telling the stories of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get episode transcripts and other spooky things I'm working on, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, going dark. <laughs>